Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I have a soft spot for Michael Smirkanish because, like me, he has a long history in urban politics and a treasure trove of stories uh, about it. And he made the switch to journalism, though I went the other way. And now he's one of the most listened to talk radio hosts in America. And he has an interesting angle on it because he doesn't come from the left or right. He dropped by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we sat down to talk about his career, the state of talk radio, and our politics. Michael Smirkanish, it's such a a pleasure to see you. Uh, Grateful that you're here at the Institute of Politics. We've spent many hours together on various (laughs) panels over the years. It's true. It's good to be here to talk about you. Oh, boy. Uh, The man behind the, (laughs) the beard. Um, so, um, tell me about the Smirkanishes and you, you, you have a very rich kind of European ethnic history, um, that is kind of the classic American story. My parents are coal crackers from Northeast Pennsylvania, a turf, you know, well, very politically significant, especially in the last cycle. And, and then my father, who was a school teacher and then guidance counselor, in the public schools, moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia, and that's where he and my mother raised my brother and me. Your uh, your grandfather uh, was a, as you say, a coal miner. Um, he he was uh, so uh, committed to his church that he prepared his own funeral. That he he laid the whole thing Boy, out. Wait, I and... am really impressed. Well, you tell are me about absolutely right. And did and you if, did and you I know him? Recent, uh, I did, but but only very briefly as a as a, a young person. But I returned to that church within the last three weeks. It's the Holy Trinity. It's an Eastern uh, Orthodox church in McAdoo, Pennsylvania, because I lost my father a few months ago. I saw that. I'm so sorry to yeah, see that. Yeah, thank you for that. saying that. But I, 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 was, I was sort of traipsing through the graveyard and seeing where all these relatives are buried at a time when I have to make a decision about my father's tombstone. What a grisly note on which to begin your podcast. But I decided I would emulate the tombstone of both of his parents because they were exactly the same. And, you know, I'm no authority on picking tombstones. Yes. But that whole Eastern European coal mining heritage runs through my veins. And how does it how does it inform who you are? I mean, you obviously, you're, uh, I mean, we'll go through your history, but, you know, you're a lawyer, you're a television and radio personality, um, you, you know, you're you're uh, somewhat removed from the minds. True. And a bit embarrassed about the fact that I still have so many relatives in that part of the state. My mother's one of 11, eight sisters and three brothers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're from the former Yugoslavia. And they are, the relatives are still ingrained in that community. I like to say, David, I'm a butter knife away from many Trump supporters, and I'm embarrassed that in the last cycle, despite what I was hearing from those relatives, I didn't see it coming. This is so interesting to me because, um, you know, I have a place in rural Michigan, and my neighbors all, I've said this here before, but my neighbors all had Trump signs in their yard, and uh, my wife would call me, you know, I'd be sitting on a set at CNN or doing, right. speaking somewhere. She'd say, are you sure that Hillary's going to carry Michigan? And I said, well, you know, that's what the numbers show. That's what they tell me. She said, because I'll tell you what, all our neighbors have Trump signs in their yard. And, and parenthetically, um, and I often say this, these were not all sort of toothless, ignorant, racist, the caricature of the, these, you know, they, they, they had some... Uh, some good reasons in their mind to be for Trump and uh, that had to do with feeling like they were neglected 
just uh, you know do, uh, forgotten, do, forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And Bradley Jr.'s book, which I think sums it up well and drills down on Luzerne County. Yes, and that's where my family is from. Yes. So, um, uh, but you guys migrated to the suburbs, but and you Correct. were in a Republican, raised in a Republican household. Yeah, yeah, raised in a Republican household. And why was it a Republican household? Ah. Uh, a good question. I, I think because my parents probably thought that they aspired to be the type of people that Republicans were, you know, prosperous with a white picket fence and and living the American dream. And ultimately, they did live the American dream. My mother, very successful. She'd be offended if I told you her age, but works every day and is a very successful realtor with, with her own office. Mm-hmm. But when I turned 18 in the spring of 1980, there was not a question as to which party I would join. I was going to become a Republican, and I became, at an early age, a very active Republican. I was in for the program. I know you were, but uh, at, an, at an even earlier age, you were writing fan mail to a very prominent <laughs> oh Democrat. Okay, uh, who did the staff Frank, work? Can uh, I meet this person? We, we will take care of this after the show. Uh, Frank Rizzo. True. Uh, who was the very flamboyant police chief of Philadelphia who became the mayor of Philadelphia. And when you were in sixth grade or something, you wrote him uh, a, a letter. And he wrote back. And by the time that I got to junior high and high school, he would call me from time to time. We'd never met. And soon after I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to go to his house at 8919 Crefeld Street in Chestnut Hill. There was controversy about the house and be introduced to him. And it, it was the beginning of a, uh, of, of a very close relationship. One that flamed out at a certain point and and then was repaired yeah, wanna, before his passing. I, I want to ask you about that because in certain way, I mean, first of all, we should point out Rizzo. I mean, Rizzo would be a Trump character. He was Trump before Trump. Exactly. No I doubt. Mean, he was, you know, he said, and I, I, the, I have to, I, I am going to preface this by saying I'm quoting the man. I am not endorsing the language, but he was famous for saying that he was going to deal with protesters in a way that would make Attila the Hun look like a faggot. I was, was wondering his, which of the quotes quote. you were going to pull. No, there, there are, are 50 there choices. Are, there, are, there are many of them. And he was, um, you know, yeah, he was the kind of apotheosis of that, that what we now associate with, with Trump. If you hadn't begun by talking about my roots, it might seem awfully odd that he would have been revered in the house where I grew up. But he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the prototypical ethnic hero and coming from the coal regions uh, and then closer to the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, he was he was a guy who was admired in our house, no doubt about it. And that was at a time when he was, you know, the Democratic mayor of Philadelphia from 71 to 75 and 75 to 79. But he was also a figure. He was a, a there was a lot of uh, tumult and in that time, anti-war protests uh, racial tensions, uh, and he very much fell on one side of the divide. And he was this—he was going to—he was going to bring order to chaos in the city of Philadelphia. Correct. And if he were here, he'd argue, and he did. Yeah, although not without repeated, no doubt, at re- a heavy cost, repeated controversies. And he—he—he uh, he had a, he was term limited out. He tried to change the city charter to to uh, serve another term. He, he couldn't do it, and then he he tried several times to well, become only, mayor again. Only one person ever beat him in any election, and that was Wilson Good, the city's first African-American mayor, who defeated Rizzo in 83. You'll appreciate this. And that was in a Democratic primary without the benefit of the 225,000 Republicans having the opportunity to vote. So... Rizzo's idea was that if he became a Republican, those 225,000 would have the opportunity to to vote in a good rematch and, and could, he could be bring his margin. The ethnic, uh, Correct. Ethnic Democrats back could, into the Hopefully fold. keep them in the, right in the same tent and and knock him out. It wasn't to be. And I worked on that campaign 1987 for a, for a solid year of my life. 365 straight days of being in the back of the car. He had an enormous frame. It would always be pushed all the way to the back. And I was the low man on the totem pole. And I was in that back seat. And to traverse the city streets and hear the stories that he could tell about every single intersection, because he rose from being a beat cop to police commissioner and then to mayor, was an experience I would go back and relive tomorrow Mm -hmm. just for the stories. Yeah. uh, 
and any discomfort about his politics? Does the the does the fifty yes. whatever year old Smirkanish look looks back differently and say, at it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I admire the relationship that we had because, in some respects, it, it became a father son type of a of a bond. But yes, me at age fifty six looks differently on the Rizzo record than would have the ninth grader who was eager to get that phone call from the mayor. One of my favorite books is The Last Hurrah by Edwin O'Connor about a fictitious mayor of Boston, but really based on Mayor Curley of Boston, trying to make a comeback or really trying to hang on. He was the incumbent, and a new generation candidate came along, and uh, and and he dies in the middle of the campaign. That's what happened to Frank Rizzo in 1991, and you were there that day. When, when he you arrived after he had a heart attack, and the paramedics were coming in. True, and told them as I rode the... I was sent to the... I wasn't working for Frank Rizzo. I had just been appointed by the Bush administration to be a regional administrator for HUD. I don't think I'd yet been sworn in, but I was in my HUD office and got a telephone call that said, the mayor wants to see you. He still, of course, was was given the title. He was not in office. And when I arrived, he had just dropped over. I didn't see him. And someone said to me, go down to the street level and, and bring up the paramedics, which I did. Rizzo was so so much larger than life. I know we use that expression about so many, but believe me, in yeah. Philadelphia, he was. Oh, I remember. The, the paramedics, David, did not believe me when I told them, you're about to work on, on Frank Rizzo. And I knew he was he was gone at that moment. And I remember then walking 10 or so blocks. You were actually, you saw him. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when, they, when they wheeled him out, I knew it was over. I was in disbelief. And I I walked 10 blocks to the Jefferson ER where he would be taken, uh, looking at people and, and thinking to myself, they have no idea. This this city is about to be turned upside down with, with the news, and I'll never forget that send-off, the funeral for you know, Rizzo. You know, um, uh, in 1987, I had made the move from, uh, from journalism to politics, and I ended up working for Harold Washington, who was another larger-than-life uh, figure and say he he had a heart attack in his office, and uh, and you know really was dead uh, on the spot, um, and it was the same kind of disbelief because you have these robust kind of larger than life figures who dominate a city. Uh, same with Mayor Richard J. Daley who died in 1976, and and it's stunning to a the city. Even if someone's not mayor, this guy had been so much a part of the fabric of Philadelphia uh, for so long. Uh, and how did it affect you personally? Well, I was uh, I was fortunate. We had a falling out. We had a falling out over who would lead the Bush campaign, Bush campaign in '88. Right. In other words, I in, in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, I was asked if I would chair the the Bush campaign. Rizzo, having lost the '87 race, but still believing he had a, a future as a Republican, desperately wanted the title for himself. By the way, I can hear Frank Rizzo right now saying, "This is Smirkanish's version." And that's true, and I'm sticking to it. But my version was that the Bush campaign wanted nothing to do with him. They thought he was too I'm toxic. Sure. Yeah. And I negotiated a deal where he would be given the role honorary chair of the 88 Bush campaign, and I would be the chairman, and I would run all the nuts and bolts of it. And uh, he he believed that I'd sold him out, uh, was disbelieving of the fact that the Bush campaign didn't want to be close to him, and that was a falling out that we had. And we went for a, a year or two without speaking at all. So much so that you were supposed to take him to a dinner. You invited him to a dinner where Richard Nixon was speaking, who was a, 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 a he considered a, a friend. And we'll talk in a second about this column you you wrote about this letter that Nixon had uh, written. What's the language policy on, on the uh, the Axe file? There, it's a podcast, brother. We can. It's even better okay. than Sirius XM. Fuck you and your Nixon dinner were yeah. the last words that he said to me as we were within 48 hours of going to a black tie where the two of us were supposed to be seated with Richard Nixon. And those were the final words that he spoke to me for, I think, a two-year time period. You uh, pretty memorable. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I, those, that's the kind of conversation you never forget. I've had a few of those myself. So uh, did uh, so. You wrote about this letter. You you went over to see Frank Rizzo a few days after uh, he lost in 1987, and he was basically in mourning, and people were uh, phoning and so on. 
And you describe, I think beautifully, by the way, how he came in with this letter that he carried with real reverence. True. And uh, it was from Richard Nixon. Handwritten. Yeah. And you remember the first line of the letter. When you win, you hear from everyone. When you lose, you hear only from your friends. I'm in the latter category. Right. And then uh, when they auctioned off Frank Rizzo's stuff, that letter was auctioned off. but But it was from... Uh, 1983, not 1987, which caused you to do in Smirconish fashion this, like, all of these forensics to find out whether Rizzo was telling you the truth or not. And what did you discover? What I discovered, uh, you're right, and I made contact with with, uh, two presidents of the Nixon Library, one who had recently served and and the current person in that position. And I wanted to know, was, was Nixon, was this a favorite expression of his? And David, they documented for me that indeed he was very fond of saying to political friends who ran and lost or to sports teams and sports leaders, it, when you win, you hear from everybody. When you lose, you hear from your friends. So I bought the letter. Okay, I you know don't. I hope my wife doesn't hear this episode of the uh, the the axe file. But I I paid I think two grand for it. I had to have it. And I I guess I will never know. Is this did Nixon write two letters? Did right. Nixon write this to Rizzo in '83, and did he write it again in '87 at the auction? No, 1987 letter ever surfaced typed or handwritten, and I know that Nixon would have reached out, so that only makes me more dubious. See, this is what happens when you're an ex-president, you don't have enough staff. (laughs) Sir, you wrote the same thing the last time the guy lost. But honestly, what resonated with me was Richard Nixon was such a complex figure, and he had had such ups and downs in his life. He lost in 1960 by a razor-thin margin. We sit here in the city of Chicago. He still blames the old Mayor Daley for having stolen that election from him. or, or did blame him. Uh, he lost for governor of California in 1962. Uh, and then, of course, he was ultimately disgraced uh, after Watergate. So you could see him thinking about who you're—he he had a chance to explore in depth how people treat you when you're down. Absolutely. That letter said a great deal about about both men. And by the way, they, they were all—they were each very complex. I, I get— how they would have been drawn to to one another. Well, they also both kind of surfed the politics of resentment. True. I mean, they, they were both cultural warriors. And in uh, much as we, we point out about Trump, I mean, they recognized these forces out there and they, they were able to capture them politically for their own uh, gain. And, and I don't want to, you know, I mean, they were speaking to something that was real out there. Uh, you know, in some ways, Rizzo was, I think, the more authentic of the two. I mean, I think Nixon was a resentful person, but I think more than anything, he was a politician who wanted power. And he, in 1968, saw George Wallace and said, I can get a piece of this. And he played that game, you know, to the end of his political career. Well, he also in the 50s, you know, anti-communism and the pink leafleting. The, the pink and the pink lady when he was yeah. running against Helen Gahagan Douglas, Douglas for right. the Senate right. in 19, uh, in, I guess, 1950, 52. You went to Lehigh University and you uh, decided that you wanted to go to Penn Law School. Why did why was that so important to you? I held it on a pedestal because it was it was a reach uh, and it represented total achievement for me. Um, I I was accepted at Lehigh as a legacy. My father had obtained a master's there. My brother had had attended Lehigh. Was president of his class. I was very fortunate that they had blazed that trail for me because my SAT scores were below the Mendoza line. And I really applied myself when I got to school because I had a mentor who was uh, a one-man director of the Urban Studies Department, and he just and threw David a switch. David Amadon. David Amadon Jr. Yes, yeah. And he uh, and he threw a switch in me and made me read and turned me on. And I I, I left Lehigh a very different person, I think, than That's I entered. That's a great story about the impact of one person of a that a teacher can have on a. On a student. Yes. Um, and so you got to Penn. 
And uh, having reached the summit, you immediately run for state legislator while you're in law school. I did. Well, see, so. my, 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 father, my father had run for a state legislative district in the Philadelphia suburbs without any formal political background. He'd been active in the community, but he'd not been active politically. And he lost in a primary in 1980. So it's now 1986. And I, it, the timing wasn't great because I was a full-time student, but I made an arrangement with Penn that I would maintain a full class schedule and that if I were elected and went to Harrisburg, they would award me a, a Penn Law degree, which was very important to me, although I'd finish at a different law school. Long story short, I ran for the state legislature in an open primary in a five or a six-way race, came in second, lost by 419 votes, uh, had it on my mind you know, that I would avenge my dad's defeat, but that wasn't in the cards. And part of the reason you lost is you took a position on a nuclear dumping facility, right? So tell me about that, because that was a you knew probably that you were taking an unpopular position. This was about a nuclear pumping a plant pumping station that was going to be positioned along the Delaware River. It, it was, and it became a it became a flashpoint for Abby Hoffman of yes. all people. And Abby Hoffman came in and campaigned against me. I was, uh, you know, I was in my That's mid- quite a distinction for right? a 26-year-old law student. <laughs> Put that student. on the epitaph. So, uh, yeah, it was, I was for the Point Pleasant Water Diversion Project, a.k.a. the pump. And uh, the other candidates in the race, I think, were uniformly against it. Uh, in the end, they built the pump, and it did not have the disastrous consequences that, that people had feared that it would. But that was Except for you. Except for me. Yeah, I'm the disastrous. <laughs> I'll tell you, David, you'll get a kick out of this. The, the, the biggest mistake that I made was that I accepted a check from the Philadelphia Electric Company, Pico Pack. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was probably $200. But that was so held against me that, that I had yard signs that said, Michael Swirkanish for state representative. And this environmental group that was vehemently anti-pump very cleverly printed labels that said Pico that fit on my yard signs. And so all over suburban Bucks County, it would say Michael Smirconish for Pico representative. And I couldn't take those damn signs down fast enough. But it was a very heated campaign. And I, I, I worked it hard. And I have no regrets. You know, if, 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 if you said to me, Michael, you can go back and rewrite that chapter of your life, or you could win the race, or I wouldn't want to change any of it. I learned more knocking on a few thousand doors than I learned at the Penn Law School or at Lehigh University. And what did you learn about politics in that with that particular episode? And you were in some kind of knock down, drag out battles. I was. As an organizer. as No a, doubt. And so you, 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 you probably wouldn't blush at that tactic. I mean, was there a part of you that said, well, you sort of said it, that, wow, that's, that's pretty slick. Well, uh, we actually, it's another great story, but I was with my campaign treasurer and we actually saw a guy who was in the act of defacing them and we gave chase and then we weren't sure what to do because we knew who he was and we showed up at the police department and I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to press charges against a guy for putting labels on my yard signs? Because you're right, you know, there, there were some campaigns I'd been involved with up until that point where yeah. perhaps I wouldn't want to be evaluated in the same way. Yeah, I'm sure the Rizzo campaigns were not a we're not all portrait present. of uh, <laughs> rectitude. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. So in in eighty eight, uh, you you got first of all you you became friendly with Arlen Specter as well, who yes. was then a Republican senator, correct from uh, uh, good friend from Pennsylvania, good friend, and his and his uh, uh, one of his sons uh, remains one of my closest of friends. We've been friends for my God since nineteen eighty. Yeah, we we should. When we talk about what happened with the Republican Party, we should talk about Arlen Specter, uh, but let's let's hold that for a second because he obviously he was a the kind of Republican that is not terribly welcome in the Republican Party right now. True, and and, and became a Democrat. And and I end. think you know you you asked previously whether I today hold those same views of many years ago, and I don't. But Arlen Specter was one of in the same way that the one professor. Uh, made me see the light intellectually, academically. I think Senator Specter had that same influence on me politically. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know where I'd be today in my thought process uh, without him. We'll get back to him. 
you uh, you worked on the Bush campaign, and you were rewarded uh, after the Bush campaign with a position that you mentioned uh, as a uh, uh, as a uh, housing coordinator, right, uh, for the Department of Housing and Urban Development in that part of Pennsylvania. Well, um, I I had. Jack Kemp was my boss. Mm -hmm. I had responsibility at age 29 for all federal housing in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? Uh, It was an eye-opener. It was a a great uh, experience for me being raised in suburbia to have the interactions that I had with people of very little means and of very diverse backgrounds that didn't look like my neighbors in suburbia. And Kemp at the time was was attempting to change the face of public housing by introducing elements of, of private property ownership. In the end, it didn't go anywhere, but I was proud to be associated with, with him trying a different approach. He was an interesting character, a professional football star uh, who went into politics in Buffalo, uh, ran for president, ran for vice president, um, and was sort of a sunny-side-up Republican. I mean, he had this notion that Republicans could break down barriers, uh, you know, racial barriers that were um, that 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 was were uh, dogging their ability to grow, and uh, and uh, but his and and of course Paul Ryan was one of his uh, adherents, one of his uh, mentees. Um, but, uh, but his, he's another tradition in the Republican party that sort of stalled out. He was the original compassionate conservative, I think, yeah. uh, before W sort of coined that, uh, that label, uh, ideologically he and Specter were not twins, but there was a lot of similarity between the two of them. They were out of the box thinkers and they were intellectually driven. You, um, David, you, you get the picture. I've, you're making me realize I've been so fortunate you just think about the carpool of individuals that you've identified already that I've had the privilege of of being close to and interacting with. It's it's been a, a really fortunate existence that I have had. Yeah, well, it's not just in politics because no. it's also in the law. You you worked for uh, I guess a decade or so in in uh, trial law, uh, in, in plaintiffs' law for a guy named James E. Beasley Sr., who was a, a legend, legend. In, in in Philadelphia and yeah. really around the country. Um, Lynn Abraham, the former uh, mm-hmm. DA in Philly, uh, said he was he was the original king of torts, which is, of course was a reference to a. Uh, a book uh, that... Uh, this is a guy who drove a Greyhound bus after his World War II service, drove past the Temple University Law School on North Broad Street, was inspired to finish his education, and today that law school bears his name. Yeah. And he was a hell of a guy. And and he you would have appreciated him because he was remarkably street smart. Yeah. No, the like I said, he's he's there are a handful of trial lawyers around the country who are legends. He was he was legendary. What did you learn from uh, working there and working for him? Uh, I learned much. I learned lessons from Beasley, much like I learned knocking on doors in my state representative campaign when you'd open a door and every door was a different experience and people were dealing with their own stressors and situations and family lives. And, and Jim was very tuned into, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with how to say it, but he was, he was someone who was really in tune with trying to understand what make people, what makes people tick, what, what really motivates them and, uh, be a good listener mm-hmm. to try and understand in this case, trying a case to a jury, uh, what they want so that you can give it to them. Now, were you trying cases? Oh, yeah. I tried cases for 10 years. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, and did you enjoy that? Sometimes I did, and, and sometimes I, uh, I I didn't. I mean, the, the, the quality of the caseload that I had working with him and the cases that I brought in myself were pretty extraordinary. It was not, it was not a typical, you know, Jim would, Jim would get the pick of the litter. Um, I loved working with him. Loved working with him, and we we worked together on some very high profile litigation. He uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but he one of his uh, later cases was um, was it suing the Philadelphia Inquirer? 
Oh, yeah. Record defamation uh, on behalf of another legendary Philadelphia lawyer named Dick Sprague. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he his he was he was the man in terms of that. Uh, but you clearly had thoughts about a, another career while you were developing your while you were developing as a lawyer, you were also developing a career uh, as a commentator, as a writer. What led you there? Well, I'd had these, as you've described, I had these unique political experiences at an early age. And as a result, when it would be election night in Philadelphia and the local network affiliates were putting together their coverage, when I was still in my 20s, I would be called on by certain of the anchors to provide commentary. Larry Kane, chief among mm-hmm. them, who was sort of the dean. Another of, legend in Another legend. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and someone that I once delivered chlorine to his house when I was working for a pool and patio furniture store and uh, remembered meeting him on that occasion. And he claims that he remembers meeting me. But I think the ego of it consumed me. I liked being on television which was initially what I would be asked to do. And I thought I had a skill set for it. And after I appeared on television just a few times, then the one radio station in Philadelphia, talk radio station, came to me and they said, we'd like you to be a guest of ours. And I provided analysis. And then after the analysis, they gave me a fill-in role and then a show of my own on uh, Saturday mornings, then Sunday mornings, then Sunday nights, then afternoon drive. If you looked at it on a graph, of course, why would you? But you would think there was a plan to Especially it. Especially on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, but it, you know, it just sort of flowed uh, in, a, in a very logical direction, even though I didn't know it at the time. So, and, and were you then pulling back from your law practice as you got more and more responsibility on the radio, or were you I was doing burning, both? I was burning the candle at all ends and recently married and in the process of, of, of raising four children. Oh, my. I look back at those days, and I have no idea. You know, four kids in the house, four dogs in the house, <laughs> uh, and two careers that I was juggling. And and then came the, the point where CBS said to me, uh, we are uh, – we are – cutting loose Don Imus in the morning, and we want you to be our morning drive guy. And that was the moment that I had to decide. I have, I have a very secure law practice. I am working for a guy who, who others would dream of working for. And yet, here's this opportunity. Am I ready to, to take the shot? And I did. And I never looked back. Yeah, you don't. You didn't miss. Uh, you didn't miss the law. Business. No, I, I. I still. You know, it, it's funny. I. I still maintain my license. I still sit through continuing legal uh, education, ethics uh, seminars, and so forth because one never knows. The idea of going back and trying a case or two appeals to me. But I've been full on in media work since. So in doing. Uh in doing talk radio, in doing the kind of TV that you do, does did all those years of being in front of juries uh, help you? I mean, in a Immensely. sense, you're, you're, you're delivering immensely. Uh, you're delivering a case, and you're simplifying issues uh, for people. But so did knocking on doors when right. I was in my mid twenties and trying to sell myself to two thousand people in a in a suburban community. All of those political experiences, I think, have been of great benefit in turning on a microphone and uh, and and hosting a conversation. You you mentioned the Philadelphia radio station uh, WPHT. The Big Talker, it was right. called. It was a conservative station. Um, there, that became a, an issue over time. They, you, you became a more independent voice as time went on. I, I read a story somewhere. Was it there that you did the interview at the White House? Uh, where, where you they disapproved of your uh, uh, of your interview with Obama? We've skipped a few years, but that's fine. Um, we'll go back. We'll I, pick them up. I, I was seeing the world differently by now, politically speaking. I had voted for nothing. I'd voted for plenty of Democrats, but only Republican presidential candidates from 1980 through 2008. Obama would become the first Democrat for whom I'd vote. And you actually for announced that you were going to do that. You share that with your listeners. I did. I didn't have to, but I had been so open about my disenchantment with the Republican Party, largely for foreign policy reasons, right. that I felt I would be lying through omission if I didn't close the loop and say, this is what I'm doing. And so on air, 
one day, you know, with a, a long monologue of explanation prepared. I also wrote an essay for Salon that I think was uh, two or 3,000 words laying out all of my rationale. But a large part of it, David, had to do with the fact that Senator Obama was willing to come on my radio program for who knows what reason. And we had a conversation about the hunt for bin Laden. And, yes. and I asked him, well, what if he's in Pakistan? Right. And he said to me that, that he would disregard their sovereign status. And right. you'll remember better than anybody that John McCain and Joe Biden right. and Hillary Clinton all ridiculed him for oh, this. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I what, mean, I was right in the middle of that. In fact, I think I was, uh, that's when I first, you and I first chatted I back think so. in, in that day. Uh, yeah, that became a big differ- differentiator. For but we him. we had we had several conversations, interviews before uh, the election, and then after he was elected, I was I I came in and I did what was Obama's first live radio interview from the White House. That was August of '09 from the diplomatic reception room, and then in 2012. And this is what you're making reference to. This is an unbelievable story. But I was invited to come back and I was given 30 minutes one-on-one in the Oval Office, I want to say two weeks out from the election, at a time when he and Romney were neck and neck and the big storm had yet to hit New Jersey, Superstorm Sandy, if you can put yourself yes, back in uh-huh. that mindset. And now I've been syndicated. I'm on 100 radio stations across the country, and I'm, I'm thrilled that I have a one-on-one with the president with no restrictions. My syndicator, which syndicated all conservative talent and me, they were embarrassed. Uh, and I saw a memo that I was never supposed to see about how this interview should be downplayed with the affiliates, or we ran the risk that they would cut loose my program. And it was soon thereafter that I, I knew Sirius XM is probably the more hospitable home uh, for me. I mean, here I, I'm thinking I've, I've got the ultimate interview. What more could I want than the president one-on-one? And my employer was embarrassed about it. So what does this say? I mean, we've seen this only grow uh, in, in our media environment in which we're so siloed and sort of balkanized and, right uh, that uh, we we want only to be affirmed not informed and um, what does it say about our politics and our media well I if you were to ask me and, and I speak on this around the country how did we get where we are relative to polarization there are half a dozen factors that I would cite but the number one factor I would cite is the media influence. I mean, you and I are having this conversation against the backdrop of the president declaring a so-called emergency uh, relative to illegal immigration and the border. And why is he doing that? He's doing that because his feet have been held to the fire by the likes of Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and and Ann Coulter. What a great example of, of just how the leadership on the right is no longer held by party elders. It's not Mitch McConnell. It's, 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 it's largely men with microphones who control that primary audience. And consequently, the president knows that. You know, he runs the risk of seeing even in a Rasmussen poll, his re- Republican number take a dip if he's at odds with them. Yeah, it's interesting because he likes to portray himself and he's often portrayed as a guy who commands this base but he's also the prisoner of it and the prisoner of those people. Well, if you go back, when I cut my teeth in the Republican Party in the 80s, 60% of the Senate, at a time when Arlen Specter was a Republican in the Senate, 60% of the Senate were comprised of moderates. There were so many moderates in the Senate that the Republicans had their own gathering. They called it the Wednesday Lunch Club. And, you know, move from the 80s to where we are today, there's been a complete exodus of moderates. There are literally none. I, I don't know, Susan Collins, I guess, uh, maybe Lisa Murkowski, but there, there are none left. And you think about the Republicans of stature in the 80s, Bob Dole and Alan Simpson and Bob Packwood and Arlen Specter and John Hines. I mean, Jake Javits, for crying out loud, was yeah. a Republican senator. That's that's over. And I I don't here's my point. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in causation. It all turned at the end of the 80s. 91 in particular, when Rush Limbaugh was syndicated. And I get why he was successful at that time. The media was, I would argue, a left of center place. And talk radio stations around the country, including the one where I was cutting my teeth, now wanted to have Rush and a stable full of his imitators. And overnight, the industry changed. 
the, the, the question is, why now that we have all this choice in the marketplace, why now that we have internet and satellite radio and, and websites and bloggers, you know, why is the Republican Party still allowing its shots to be called by these entertainers who are conflating news and entertainment? That's the issue. Isn't the answer that uh, they do have uh, tremendous influence with Republican primary voters and activists. And, you know, let me put it in this context. Why is Lindsey Graham such a slavishly devoted uh, defender of the president having completely denigrated him when he was running for president? And and even after Lindsey was out of the race, he's doing it, I'm quite sure, because he knew he looked at polling and knew that he was headed for defeat in 2020 in a primary. No doubt about it. There was a there was a YouGov 8,000 person survey in October of last year, largest uh, arguably study of polarization at all. I buy into the finding, which says that the, the national discourse, this is really our downfall. Our national discourse is being led by very small fringe groups at the outer banks of the ideological divide. I do not believe that the country is as divided as the mouthpieces mm-hmm. and as the members of the House and Senate. Uh, Morris Fiorina at Stanford's uh, Hoover Institution yes. wrote a great book where he documented that there's not been a sea change of American opinions since the 70s. It's, it's not like today we've all become more pro-life or right. pro-choice and fill in the blank. We're pretty much where we were. But those who are leading the conversation, they're fringe. Yeah, but 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 with huge audiences. With huge audiences, and and listen, they're great entertainers. Yeah, give them credit for what they that, do. Yeah, the infotainment industry. You were, you know, well, you're still doing. You're you're still, you've got your own brand and your own uh, approach. But um, when you look at uh, a rush, Limbaugh, I mean, talk to me about him as a as a, a practitioner. About 15 years ago, he came to Philadelphia to do a live event. He rarely does them. This was at the Academy of Music. Uh, you've probably been inside. You mm-hmm. were probably inside for John Street's swearing in yes. because that's where mm-hmm. they would have it. Mm-hmm. It looks like the inside of a wedding cake. Yes. Picture this ornate, gorgeous setting, 2,000 people, the orchestra plays there. And I, I watched Limbaugh for 90 minutes captivate an audience without notes. Uh, I wrote, I was then writing for the Daily News, and I wrote a column about his uh, his abilities as an entertainer. Rush quoted from the piece in the weeks thereafter. Um, so he gives good ear, like Donald Trump. He's got a very attenuated ear and can see what plays well with the audience, and he's, he's very quick. You know, the president just last Friday in the Rose Garden was singing the praises of Limbaugh, the entertainer, who can go three hours without taking a call. Right. That's true. Right. I mean, Rush is a great entertainer. Um, but I, I think that Rush has had an impact on the party. There's a good question, I think, as to how much of it by all of these hosts are really deeply held beliefs or whether they're just reading from talking points. I wrote a novel on exactly yeah. this subject. How much of it is is just for uh, you know their their own self aggrandizement and and professional advancement? This uh, novel you you wrote was called Talk, right? A novel. Yep. Uh, now was was Stan Powers you? No, but Stan Powers was definitely based on many things that I had seen through the years. Stan Powers was a guy who's a stoner and slacker who doesn't know squat about politics. And by reading Republican talking points is nevertheless able to become a kingmaker. And because he's on the air in the I-4 corridor in Florida at a time when the Republican convention is coming to town, he's, he's literally got an outsized influence in who will be the next president of the United States. When I wrote that book, Warner Brothers acquired the television rights, and I participated in pitch meetings where people would say to me, we love the story, but we think it's a bit too fantastical. <laughs> and I look at what's going on today, right? The example of, of the wall debate being directed by talking heads, the book was ahead of its time. You know, um, the reason I asked about you was because of the way the book ends, and where it, it's it's a bit... Uh, like don't give it away. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. He's he's got a decision on his yes. hands. Is he going to take well, the let, money? Let me and just run? say to all our listeners, you won't believe <laughs> what happened at the end of this book. But it reminded me a little bit of Network, and and you know, definitely. 
uh, yeah. the great Patty Chayefsky screenplay, uh, where the sort of cynical, pecuniary needs of the network, uh, you know, were willing to embrace anything. And you know what's interesting about that? Um, this is the world in which Donald Trump grew up. I mean, this is the way he, he you know, his thing is whatever sells, whatever works, whatever helps you get, you know, the ratings, the, the profits and so on is justifiable. And the, the underlying words don't matter that much as long as they get you to where you need to go. Yeah, I don't think policy matters to him. And, I, and, and this talk show host that I created certainly didn't care about policy. He cared about ratings in the same way the president cares about, you know, tomorrow's episode. How, uh, how did you get into writing? I know you started writing for the Philadelphia Papers, but did you always consider yourself a writer? Was that something you always did? I majored in, in government and journalism at Lehigh. And the journalism department, I, I really appreciate it. I, don't, I didn't go there looking to pick up the major, but I took a, a course or two introductory and enjoyed the experience and enjoyed the personalities who were in that Lehigh journalism department. And before I knew it, I'd accumulated enough classes for a double major. And then Zach Stahlberg, who was the editor of the Philadelphia Daily News, extended the invitation to me. Frankly, David, probably because I had a profile, not because he necessarily knew that I could write. Maybe thought you'd give some balance to his could be. stable. Could be. What I, what I didn't know until I put together my re most recent book is that when I was in law school in, in 1985, I submitted an essay, a 700-word essay to the Daily News, and they printed it. And I didn't know till I went to the archives of the paper and tried to recreate all the columns I had written over the years. Like, oh my God, here's this column that I wrote back when I was you know, in my 20s and in law school. You've written, what, seven books? Seven books, yeah. Uh, the first couple were sort of about the what you consider the pernicious impact of uh, of political correctness, true, and particularly as it as it applied to national security. Uh, talk about that, and have your views changed at all, evolved at all on that? Well, I think certain of those books were were written in the heat of the moment. The first of them, I I, I never set out to write a book. The first book that I wrote was called Flying Blind. Yes. And it's about political correctness in a post 9-11 world pertaining to airline security. I, I, I became very, very concerned about uh, the way in which we were not protecting airplanes post 9-11, delved into a, a particular subject. Before I knew it, I was testifying in front of a Senate subcommittee on things that I had learned on that issue. And somebody came to me and said, put this all together and, and write a book. And I did, and I so enjoyed the experience that then I, I just kept going. I don't, I don't know that I'll write another, um, but I love the process. I just am so pressed on on time yeah. these days to be able to do it. I, uh, having written a book, I admire you for uh, feeling that way. I mean, to me, there's a lot of joy in having done it, and but the process of doing it is 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 really really hard. I mean, the discipline it takes. And the the kind of thought processes, you know, in you know, it just uh, it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. Which of these books are, mean the most to you? Talk, the novel that we've discussed, means a great deal to me, and so too does my most recent book, for which you graciously wrote the foreword. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, means a great deal to me. Um, those are my favorites. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. And by the way, this is a great collection of, uh, of columns of Michael's uh, from his uh, work in, at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia uh, Daily News. But the title, in a sense, describes where you are politically now. Uh, and what's interesting is that you went from, uh, you went from conservative talk radio to you you were a fill-in host on MSNBC. I mean, you've kind of experienced the gamut of 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 media. David, for a five-year time period, I was both Chris Matthews' principal fill-in for Hardball and Bill O'Reilly's principal fill-in for the Radio <laughs> Factor, which was his syndicated radio show. 
And and did they did they each know about this? They they both knew about <laughs> it, didn't want to hear about it. I would leave. O'Reilly's would come earlier in the day, so I would leave that Fox building at I don't know Forty Fifth and Avenue of the Americas, and I would have to walk two or three blocks north to go into Thirty Rock. And I would tell my friends, I'm not sure if I run a risk of getting shot in the back or shot in the chest. <laughs> but I was sort of the Switzerland who was able to navigate both of those worlds and 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 desperately wanted, by the way, a gig. I mean, I wanted Westwood One to give me a radio program of my own. I thought I was investing sweat equity. And when O'Reilly gave up that radio show, they wouldn't give it to me. They said, you do a great program, but nobody knows who you are. You're an unknown. And we've got this guy named Fred Thompson, and he was in the hunt for Red October. We're giving him the gig. And I said, okay, that's that's great, but he's not a radio guy. And similarly, at, at MSNBC... Had a good voice, though. Th- definitely. <laughs> uh, at MSNBC, uh, Phil Griffin, who was the president, said to me... You and know, remains the president. And remains. Mm-hmm. You know, Smirk, we love your work for Chris, but we are... Let me get it straight. We are uh, young, we are uh, liberal, and we are nerdy. And you are none of the above. You're not getting a gig here. You can continue to host for Chris. No, that's not fair. You can be nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> notice you didn't say young or uh, <laughs> right. Well, that's liberal. A, I was hoping you. But didn't I appreciated that. his honesty. Yeah. But uh, you know, because but you had to, there, you described at one point, uh, you know, the process of coming in. Scripts would have been written. True. You wanted to rewrite them. And there was a philosophical clash. Oh, at both places. Yeah. At both places, because I would want to book guests on O'Reilly's radio program, and they would tell me that's unacceptable. And I would go over to Hardball, and I would I would want to similarly book guests or deliver a particular type of commentary. And, you know, each had this deft manner of letting me know without saying it expressly that that was not a guest who would be welcome there. But they would vacation at the same time of the year every year. Then vacation in August, vacation in December. And so I was I was working my ass off hosting my own program and both of theirs in overlap times. I look back on those days. I could I don't know how I did that. Let me ask you parenthetically because I have my own feelings uh, about this in my career um but how how did you manage relative to your family? Very tough. Uh, I, I have a, you know, a forgiving wife in that regard who was always very supportive of uh, of me wanting to sort of chase the dream. I have a lot of faults. One asset I have is a really good work ethic. And nobody's going to beat me by getting up Hence earlier. Hence the seven books. Yeah, and the other things that were going on at the same time. So, um, Do you feel like you're, you... Because I do. This is why I'm asking you. I look back and I feel like I put not only undue burden on my wife, but also that I I wasn't there as much as I should have been for my kids. So I have some of that regret. We're not socially active. We, uh, We don't travel extensively. We have a second home, but we, things we do, we do as a family. And, um, so, yeah, there have been some moments, but not as many as you might think, because beyond work, it has been all home life. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of your, your career, you, you, now you, how long have you been doing the show at CNN? So five years. Show? Five years. Same time period with, uh, with Sirius XM. And you, both these shows are the shows that you, that you want to do. True. And the... I guess the question is, I mean, the philosophy that of the other outlets where you were working was very much that there is a marketplace for us and there are parameters and you have to color within those uh, parameters. And, you know, you said earlier you think the country is in a different place than our politics. Uh, presumably there is a market because you're still on the air uh, for kind of down the middle uh, sort of commentary that challenges the shibboleths of both parties. I think I'm doing my best work now. It's my most authentic work. I don't feel the need in radio or television or anything I write to kowtow to any audience. At the end of every radio broadcast and every television show, there are people who will say, oh, you're carrying water for Donald Trump, or you're a liberal and you're in the tank for the haters and we always knew it. As long as I'm pissing off everybody equally, you know, then I feel like I'm in exactly the place that that I want to be in. You remind me when I left the uh, Tribune, um, I was uh, the City Hall Bureau Chief, and um, 
one of the old ward healers, a, a character you would feel very comfortable with, uh, came up to me and he said, you know, he said, and I'm cleaning up the language just a little, but uh, he said, you know, you screwed us, but you screwed them, so I figure you're fair. <laughs> right. So I thought, well, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. But um, but I think that that is, there is a, lib- a, a liberating feeling to be able to um, sort of call it as you see it and uh, and take the you know, I mean, I feel it myself because there are times when some of my old friends, uh, you know, don't feel that I am um, pure. And there are times when conservatives don't feel that I'm sympathetic enough. Um, but, you know, there's a great, having been a practitioner, there's a great value in being able to bring the experience uh, of all those years and try and explain what's happening sure. and demystify it and call bullshit on when bullshit needs to be called. Well, can I say, look, it's for me, it's as, as the song says, it's been a long, strange trip. It's not over yet. Uh, the most recent book was cathartic in a sense because it's not only a collection of a hundred of what I regard as my most memorable columns drawn from 1,047 that I wrote in this time period, but I added an afterword for every one of them. I wasn't just going to mail in the columns. And many of them are mea culpas. You know, many of them are me saying, wow, I wouldn't have written this column right. today. And, and and people, oh, you know, you've changed so much. You've And, and my response is to say, I've not changed, I don't think, any more so than anybody else who, who leads a full life. The difference is, for me, all of my opinions are etched in columns or they've mm-hmm. been captured in, in video. So you can go back, especially now in the world in which we live, and you can find me on on any issue. But I, I embrace the, uh, the, the the change. I really do. Yeah, um, and what what? Uh, well, by the way, one of those uh, one of those columns uh, recounted your um, encounter with Fidel Castro, which sounded somewhat surreal. Uh, tell, talk about that for a second. Seven hours, I was in his company. Arlen Specter was actually. I'll, I'll just go back one one small step. Specter himself wrote a memoir. Uh, very similar to Believer, which was him reflecting on mm-hmm. all these very unique experiences that he had. His was called Passion for Truth. And you'll remember that Arlen Specter was a young prosecutor for the Warren in, Commission. In Philly, yeah. Well, for well, the Warren well, Commission well, for on the Warren Kennedy. Commission, yeah, yes. Drafted from Philly to go down and, right. and play a role in the Warren Commission. Arlen Specter was the, the architect of the, the single bullet theory, or he would force me to say later in life, the single bullet conclusion, because he thought he'd <laughs> prove it. In his memoir, he talks about going to Cuba, sitting down with Fidel Castro, and trying to get the Cuban side of the Kennedy assassination. I interviewed him about his book when the book came out. And in a throwaway line, I said, if you go back to Cuba, please take me with you. It's a bucket list item for me. Never expecting that weeks later, he would call and say, I'm going back. And you may join me if you're credentialed. Um, I think I'll see Castro, but you just never know. Well, he got to see him. We spent seven hours in Castro's company. I had the opportunity to question Fidel Castro. Uh, I'll I'll tell you a, a quick story, if I may, that I like smoking cigars. And I like smoking Cuban cigars. And early on in the evening, I told Fidel Castro that there was a new Cuban cigar that I really enjoyed. It's called the Trinidad. And Castro, at the end of the night, presents me with a box, which I impulsively had him sign of Trinidad cigars. When I get home, my wife is elated. And I can't understand because all I know about my wife and cigars is she doesn't want me smoking in the house. And uh, I said, why, why are you so pleased by this? And she said, well, you know, the, the kids' school auction is next month. <laughs> and this is going to go for a fortune. And I, of course, had to explain to her it, it was then and remains the most valuable asset, you know, in the Smirconish household. Listen, it's a pl- always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for you're a leading a program at the Institute tonight. And, um, we will uh, hopefully have many more conversations. Listen, I'll just say life. I always enjoy being in your company all those nights in the last cycle, you know, sitting uh, one seat removed from you was a great honor for me. And it, 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 some of those nights got a little long-winded. My ears <laughs> would perk up when you had something to say Thank because you. I always wanted to know what uh, uh, what was coming. So Yeah, well, 
There'll be plenty to talk about in the next year, I'm sure. I'm afraid so. <laughs> Michael Smirkanish, great to be with you. Thank, Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.